Hello there. This is Out the Gate, the podcast about sailing and adventure on and around San Francisco Bay. Sponsorship for this podcast comes from Shearwater Sailing, a charter business run by my friend Kevin Wasbauer out of Monterey Bay. Kevin offers offshore excursions aboard his beautiful FAR 53 named Atalanta. Having sailed Monterey Bay with Kevin aboard Atalanta, I can tell you she's a comfortable, safe, fast boat. And Shearwater Sailing isn't just in Monterey. Kevin's bringing Atalanta to San Francisco at the end of the month to attend the Sail GP Regatta, and you could be aboard to watch the race. He just announced more open spots for March 26th. In the morning, they'll do a tour of the bay, then head to the reserved viewing area to experience the thrill of the Sail GP finale, watching these stunning foiling catamarans up close. And next month, on April 8th to 10th, Kevin's offering the ASA 106 course, Advanced Coastal Cruising. He's going to be departing from San Francisco for three days and three nights offshore. No prerequisites are needed, but previous sailing experience is required. Go to the bookings page of shearwatersailing.net for more information on all these opportunities, and you can reach out to Kevin directly at 650-743-1389, or you can email him always at info at shearwatersailing.net. When Lawrence Loss met Alex Gleeman in San Francisco. She was planning on moving back to New York to be a journalist. He was planning on sailing the world with his brother. They managed to each do both of these things and end up back in San Francisco together, but not without many adventures together first, sailing all over the world from Singapore to Indonesia to Nicaragua to South Africa to right here up the San Francisco Bay in the Delta. In fact, I met Lauren and Alex after reading a wonderful article that Lauren wrote for the New York Times back in October after the two of them took a trip up to the Delta. In the piece, she delves into the fascinating history and politics of the Delta's land and water, and we talk about some of this at the end of the episode. But you're going to have to listen to a little over an hour to get to that part of the conversation. I enjoyed chatting with Alex and Lauren so much that this episode's a little longer than usual. So let's get right to it. Alex Kleeman, do you want any more than that? <laughs> yeah, just a little more than that, if you would. Yeah, so I grew up uh, in Chicago, moved out here to San Francisco in 2006 cool and kind of been here since uh with the exception of some long gaps that i guess we'll get to yeah <laughs> uh traveling gaps that's why we're here exactly <laughs> <laughs> i'm lauren sloss i'm alex's wife among many other things and i'm from the Barry originally did some coast hopping lived in philly in new york came back here um and i'm a journalist writing about a lot of things, but mostly travel and recently a lot about California. Which is actually how I learned about both of you, 
by reading your recent article in the New York Times about sailing in the Delta, which we will definitely get to, but we've got a lot of story, I think, to before we get there. You both are sailors, but Lauren, you didn't grow up sailing. I did not. Um, and I will say that Alex is definitely the more competent sailor between the two of us, just in terms of experience and amount that he's done. And also because he's really good at fixing things and I have no patience for that, which <laughs> seems to be kind of the, the prime qualifier to being a great sailor. Um, no, I did not grow up sailing. I first went out on a sailboat in the bay when I met Alex in 2010. And it was a lot colder than I thought it was going to be. Oh, man. It always is out there on the bay. And Alex, actually, you didn't grow up sailing either, did you? You just told me that before we started. Yeah, I did not. Uh, Although you brought sailing to the relationship. So (laughs) where did sailing enter your life? Yeah, so, I mean, the very first time I ever sailed was on Lake Geneva Mm -hmm. in Wisconsin, kind of near the, right on the southern border with Illinois. It's a pretty popular destination for uh, Chicagoans. Yeah. Uh, and just took a friend's sunfish out. It was actually my brother and I, it's and we had no clue what we were doing and there was basically <laughs> no wind. So it was kind of harmless, but is your brother younger or older? My brother's two years younger. Nick. Okay. Yeah. I asked because I used to take my brother out in a sunfish capsize it for him and then say, Hey, figure out how to get it back up. Yeah. Well, we definitely <laughs> capsized multiple times that day, despite the lack of wind. <laughs> But really didn't sail again for quite a while. That, that was just like a brief, I don't know, like 30 minutes of sailing. Yeah. Um, fast forward, I guess, uh, it was probably, let's say, like 23 or something. And uh, was working in Chicago, had just finished undergrad, and some friends uh, decided to take a class. So we took a class on Lake Michigan, mm-hmm. it was like a two-day class, maybe three, um, so pretty brief one, but uh, they kind of gave us the bug, and then I moved out here, um, and actually one of the friends I took the class with uh, ended up in San Francisco too, so when we were out here, you know, maybe three, four years later, uh, looking out at the base, saw the sailboats and thought, hey, we should maybe do that again, uh, and looked into renting a boat, uh, and realized it was like $250 a day or something. Yeah. Like, it's oh, not easy to get out on the water here. Yeah, places. right? So, yeah, you know, I was a student. Uh, we, we, that kind of discouraged us until we came across a Craigslist ad for a Santana 22 ah. for $1,000. <laughs> and you're like, hey, if we go out four times and sell it <laughs> right yeah it's a better deal than joining the club yeah renting a boat. Yeah. yeah so we did that we split it uh my brother and i and, and uh my friend now they you know what they say that the <clears throat> one of the most expensive things can be a free boat mm. or a cheap boat yeah thankfully um knowing nothing really at all about keel boats mm-hmm. and purchasing this boat we got very lucky it was you know, pristine shape, no, but like very structurally sound. In fact, like probably one of the better bay sailing boats that I've owned. Hmm. Small and wet, but heavy, sturdy compared to... So So basically, we, we sailed this boat probably for about a year or two. Um, and really, we're using it a lot, right? Mm-hmm. Like going out, uh, maybe not every weekend, but every other. Uh, it was 
basically just what we did, friends. What was your impression of sailing on the bay after learning on Lake Michigan? Lauren already said she found it a lot colder than she had expected. But I'd lived in San Francisco enough to know the the wind and fog and the you know it's not a warm place yeah and so i didn't really have high expectations for the uh, I, I was expecting to basically just take a shower every time yeah in a cold shower uh which is very much what it was um particularly yeah you know the summer days out here uh yeah you're lucky or you know the lowest it'll get is 20 knots <laughs> Uh, right. right, right in the slot. We we kept the boat at Fort Mason and at Gashouse Cove there. Uh-huh. So we were basically right in the thick of it. The result of that was a lot of learning through mistakes. I don't know how many times we tore that mainsail. Probably like three <laughs> or four. <laughs> That'll like, teach you when to reef. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So that's how we learned to reef. It was like stitching that thing back together by hand. That that's really how we learned to sail was just shoving yeah. off and getting knocked around in the bay. Yeah. Uh, when I met Alex, he was a super competent sailor. He'd been doing it for a number of years. I think you were on your second boat. No, you third. Yeah. Mm, there are a lot of boats. <laughs> but when I understood that they'd mostly taught themselves on the bay, that really blew my mind. I mean, for like all of the sailing we've done in various places. The bay is just the gnarliest in so many ways. The traffic, the currents, the wind, there's a lot of factors to take in. So I was very impressed and I'm glad I wasn't there for the first few times. It sounded yeah. pretty beauty. I mean, it's a great body of water for, for learning on because you get your hard knocks. In. <laughs> if you sail here, you can sail just about anywhere. We heard that multiple times and honestly sort of, I just sort of dismissed it. Yeah, people will say that about wherever they sail, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It was like, okay, sure. But I think it's pretty true. I mean, it's a different, you have a different skill set that you develop, but most of the things you learn are more extreme than um, conditions you'll experience elsewhere. So it's pretty true. Like traffic wise, pretty busy. Learning to navigate container ships, tugboats, motorboats sailing races uh it's all there um and then like then add navigating that all with 25 35 40 knots of wind and that's a whole thing and then add to that getting pushed around by four plus knot currents uh you really learn to to look at the weather forecasts and and look at the tide forecasts um and and then you get to add on low visibility with fog yeah exactly (laughs) yeah uh so I do think there's some merit to that. Um, that said, you don't learn like the, you, you, there, there's skills that are missing for like cruising that you don't right. learn. But in terms of boat handling, um, I think it's pretty true. I read that when the two of you met, well, I should let you tell the story here. But from what I understand, you met in San Francisco and we're both headed elsewhere. I'll also just back up slightly yeah, to answer please. your previous question because it'll get chronologically correct then <laughs> okay we owned one boat and then the santana 22 mm-hmm. and then we were going out so frequently with so many friends uh that we ended up getting a larger group of friends to pitch in on a slightly larger boat okay hunter 25 which oh i had one of those yeah handled very differently <laughs> i uh, met than the santana the santana was glorious the, yeah. the 125 eh. yeah uh yeah. and 
and basically there is some momentum gathering just even in our group you know you you can only go under the bridge so many times before you start to visualize going further uh-huh. we would go down to half moon bay and in somewhere in there this having been somewhat of a subject beforehand with my brother too the idea began to form of a longer trip mm. so this is getting into your most recent question of like what our plans were well before we get there yeah. your brother had also decided he was interested in sailing independent of you yeah so my brother was in on the ori- the first boat, the Santana. Oh, okay. So he was here in the Bay Area. He was here in the Bay Area. Uh, we had, uh, my brother and I had done the Camino de Santiago, a long hike across Spain. Mm. Um, you know, it took about a month. Uh, it's a relatively popular thing, um, but we really liked the format of just this like long trip, nomadic, almost running into people but with like a purpose. And you knew the two of you traveled well together. We knew we traveled well together. Yeah, and and I'd say like that trip combined with previous trip where we were in Croatia, you know, we're trying to to spare every penny we can. Uh We're students and, you know, cheap. Yeah. Uh, And we came across uh, another group who were also traveling very cheap. And then we learned that they were traveling on a sailboat um, I think they'd rented it, but uh, the like basically they didn't need to pay for accommodation. They were cooking on the boat, yeah. And so we sort of had this realization that maybe a boat is a good way to travel that's cheap and also have this like long destination style travel involved. Mm-hmm. I really relate to that to the idea of sailing as a vehicle for literally a vehicle, but a way to travel. Yeah, I mean, I love sailing, but if you really pressed me on it, I would say it, it, it's a it's a means to an end. Yeah, agreed. Yeah. yeah, it's hard to pinpoint when we sort of decided that we actually wanted to do this. It was an idea that had been like tossed around, maybe even since the we first met that group in Croatia. I don't like I don't, I don't actually know. I know we talked at some point then about like oh, wow, like sailing around the world would be cool. Uh, But I'd say it didn't really actually become kind of a realistic thought until uh, we started going out in the bay all the time and started Mm -hmm. like, you know, slowly upgrading boats and yeah, getting down to Half Moon Bay and sort of I found myself starting to volunteer to race. uh, And like, Part of that was I liked it, but part of it was me thinking, oh, this will teach me a lot. <laughs> uh, so it sort of was evolving. And this is right about when Lauren when and I you met them. So I want to hear from Lauren. What did Alex tell you about these plans when you guys met? Great question. <laughs> Nothing at all for the first <laughs> six months that we knew each other. He contested this for a little bit but in general my memory for finite detail is a little better than his so i'm gonna <laughs> stick with my story which is that it's my six, story and i'm sticking with it six months in um we were out drinking beers at the church key in north beach mm-hmm. great spot and alex dropped that he and his brother were planning on sailing around the world and that they'd be gone for at least a year which in retrospect is hilarious that they even tried to pin it to a year but he wasn't quite sure how long 
So I was like, huh, interesting. Meanwhile, my plans at the time, I was going to go to New York and go to journalism school and live in a city that I'd always wanted to live in and pursue a career that I wanted to get into. And before I met Alex, I wasn't sure if I'd ever come back to the Bay. I probably would have. It's hard not to come back here. But I was I had, I had big, big ideas of my my New York journalism career. Mm -hmm. So yeah, Alex dropped this on me when I was already planning on moving to the East coast and trying to convince him that we should attempt long distance. Um, so he was pretty skeptical of that, which is fair. It was reasonable, but I'm very stubborn (laughs) and very persistent and And persuasive and persuasive. (laughs) And, and yeah, no, I mean that, that was all tough, but I thought we had a good thing and didn't see any reason to end it. Yeah. For something as minor as an around the world sailing trip that will yeah. only take a year. Only a year. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> what did you think about this, Lauren? Frankly, I think I thought it was pretty badass. Right answer. I, yeah. <laughs> I it it didn't it didn't occur to me as being as approachable or realistic as I would later come to see it. Uh-huh. As and that's not to minimize how much prep it takes and how many skills are helpful and yeah. kind of the cliff jump mentality of just doing the damn thing. But it seemed crazy. It seemed wild. It seemed like something that people don't do. Yeah. But mostly it seemed pretty badass. I was definitely someone with a lot of wanderlust and a lot of interest in adventure. And something Was that- there ever a... Uh- a thought of an invitation or this was you and your brother and this was, that's what the plan was. Alex just nodded, but I (laughs) never once thought of inviting myself or seeking an invitation, both because it seemed clear that this was Alex's brother, like their thing. At that time we didn't know each other. We knew each other pretty well, but not that well. Yeah. And, and I had my own, my own plans. I had my own stuff to do. Right. Right. Which I was not willing to drop for, a trip or a guy. Yeah. Good for you. What was the boat? That might also answer part of the question too, which is <laughs> I was a Valiant 32, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. which is a very sturdy boat, but not yeah. not the sort of boat with enough room that you invite your girlfriend along on a trip. Plus <laughs> quarters. <laughs> New girlfriend, yeah. <laughs> New girl, yeah. Yeah, I mean, one, you know, we were, yeah, as Lauren mentioned, it, it's, it wasn't as obvious that it, that our relationship was going to last through this. Um, but I yeah. think even if we had thought that, uh, the boat's pretty small. And actually, it started uh, not just my brother and I, but also our friend Dave Green. So there are three of us on the boat. Okay. Uh, which is pretty close to max capacity on a Valiant 32. Yeah. Uh, it's a double ender. Yeah. So so that cuts the size a little bit. It's yep. 32 foot yep. already. So Yep. Yeah, there's it it worked, you know. Um but yeah, there's not a lot of private space on mm-hmm. uh, about that size. Yeah. So basically none. Yeah. <laughs> so you guys left from here. Yeah, basically um my brother ended up uh I guess the the second and there's a third boat we didn't get to, but uh <laughs> those were my brother was actually in Korea studying or, or teaching English, um, but very much at that point with the goal of making money for this trip. So okay. it was very much the idea to leave from here. 
so he came back we started looking for boats it was probably about a year before we actually bought the boat Fi- spent maybe nine months fixing the boat up it was in pretty good shape really yeah i mean compared to now he was in pristine shape <laughs> visually at least there might be some um there are a lot of improvements but there it, it also there's a lot of wear and tear on the sure. salt breaker at this point well but, i uh a global journey will do that to yeah a yeah it looks like a boat that has gone around the world uh, <laughs> yeah it's got a lot of character now we spent nine months fixing it up basically and left from here and first stop was half moon bay so nice long trip to start it off <laughs> when we met they didn't have the boat yet so there was also a little bit of like, oh, oh. they don't have a boat yet. Oh, like, are they really okay. going to do this? Are they really going to do yeah, that? Yeah, so I moved to New York, and when I was gone and we were doing long distance, Alex and Nick bought Saltbreaker, started fixing the boat up, put a bunch of work in, put more work in, and then left. So by the time they left, we'd known each other for more than a year and a half at that point. Mm-hmm. You, were you coming back and forth for the long distance relationship? Yeah. Yeah, there was there were several trips back and forth yeah. in that six months or so. Yeah. And then because I was in school, I just came back to San Francisco for the summer, did a lot of sailing with you. <laughs> did a lot of freelancing. Yeah. And then was able to be around for the grand send off. Tell me about that. What time of year? Do you remember? It was September eighteenth, twenty eleven, which we think is talk like a pirate day, but wasn't um shoot well oh well it was we'll around s- we'll there. say it is yeah <laughs> um right. and their very large very wonderful very boisterous family all came out we had a huge party on angel island and alex will have to tell you more about l- leading up to that because i think he mostly just ran around like crazy and didn't sleep or eat very much it seemed really really hectic so the first sail to half moon bay was not very far but it was also an excuse to just kind of chill and keep doing boat work i don't think we realized how good of an idea it was but basically picking a date and having family fly out was the best choice because it sort of forced us to leave so yeah leading up there were plenty of things i mean even after we left all sorts of projects right we you sort of like create a list of like priority like a b and c and like you know never get to b and do c because you're bored and a because you have to (laughs) Uh, Bill, like, yeah. Uh, yeah, I know this list yeah. well. I've been in the boatyard right yeah. now. And if you like, actually tried to make it all the way through this list, you would never leave. Um, so the fact that we had family coming out was uh, really, I think, uh, an excellent way to go. Yeah. Um, yeah, basically just you got to pick a date. Um, and so, yeah, by the time we made it to Half Moon Bay, which, you know, it was like an uh, eight-hour sail away easy 15 minute drive from the city but we forbade all family members from <laughs> from making that 15 minute drive to visit us there we we're like no we are on our trip now yeah uh, you cannot visit us <laughs> and we basically spent three days there just like packing things into the boat because before we left it was just sort of a like we're gonna need this throw it below <laughs> sort of yeah, situation yeah. so yeah it was um don't look too closely <laughs> yeah it was a it was a bit of a haphazard uh uh, initial departure and in, in terms of storage and just all around but it was the way to go yeah lauren i know you joined him at points when was the first time 
First time I met up with a boat was in Nicaragua. Okay. So about six months after you left. The boat hadn't gotten any bigger at that point, so it was still close. Court. Your, your relationship was a little <laughs> more solid, I'd imagine, but talk about it. Yeah, the boat that. had not gotten bigger. The three men aboard had not gotten cleaner <laughs> or less hairy. <laughs> um, I don't know. I I think I'm pretty good at adapting to whatever situation I'm in. So I was still in New York at the time and I flew down to Nicaragua and got myself to the coast via minibus and taxi and a lot of hand gestures. And their rule was you can pick a time or a place, but you can't pick both. So I guessed as best, best I could and was only there a night, I think, before you guys arrived. Um, and I'm sure I had plenty of anxiety going into it about where I would, how I would fit into the whole dynamic and how I would feel about it. Um, but it was great. It was easy. It was seamless in a lot of ways. Not hurt by the fact that sailing down the coast of Nicaragua was super exhausting. Mm. And we only did long day sails because it was so gnarly. And I can let Alex speak a bit more about why it was so gnarly so we were just so tired that it didn't really matter what else was going on it was just like beat into chop all day and then drink really good rum and then collapse (laughs) so um yeah i fit fit right in i guess so what was was it the beating that was gnarly or what was the uh yeah so basically off of um that little stretch in nicaragua you get what are called papagayos which are winds that are coming, basically squeezing through, you know, you're, you're pretty close to the canal and like the isthmus there that has the lowest elevation. And so all of the trade winds in the Atlantic are kind of slamming through this point oh. and funneling through it. It's, you know, like if we're talking about the Bay Area, it's a great way to learn things. Yeah. It's similar, right? Basically right. just all the time you have 40 knots of wind. Um, the trick here is if you get blown downwind, then you are just slowly increasing your fetch and getting like harder and harder chop, which makes it harder and harder to go upwind, which means you lose more and more. <laughs> so you can easily get knocked, uh, offshore at which point you're, uh, like getting some pretty serious waves and extremely strong winds and you want to avoid that at all costs. So you're really like, we were just hugging the coast, right? Like, and I, when I mean hugging the coast, I mean like really close. Which is quarter mile offshore. Yeah. Like quarter mile offshore. So you're worried about like you're, you know, watching charts, making sure you're not going to go into shallows or rocky areas. Yeah. All while dealing with 40 something knots of wind. Wow. All things considered, it's a very manageable situation. But it's like uh, if you compare that to an ocean crossing where it's like you're activities are basically like once every other day you change sail configurations and you read books in between right uh this is like no this is like actual manual every moment yeah you gotta be on top of it that's why we only sailed during the day that's why it was yeah a bunch of short trips but you took to it yeah absolutely i think i would have been fine either way but it was kind of helpful to warm up with these tiring but approachable day sales i wasn't on watch i wasn't you know kind of doing any of that and nicaragua was amazing (laughs) because we had to stop so much we were in all these 
beautiful coast and stopping all these beautiful places oh, and swimming to shore and catching fish. And we got off a boat and did some land exploration. So it was the sailing, but it's also the, the travel, which I knew I liked. Yeah. And I guess that was probably the first time we really traveled together, certainly in an extensive way. But yeah, I was on the boat for about a month, which was great. It didn't, I wasn't sick of it. I wasn't desperate to be home. I was yeah. really excited the first time we found salad, but that was, <laughs> <laughs> that was kind of my bar. Um, so yeah, it was, it was okay. I, I didn't feel that I was terribly helpful while doing this super aggro sailing all day, every day, but there were three people who knew what was up and sometimes yeah. you just got to stay out of the way. Yeah. Well, and that's how you learn. Sure. Yeah. yeah. So this one year trip, how long was this one year trip? Uh, it depends on how you count, but <laughs> <laughs> time is pretty yeah. uh, finite. <laughs> is it still going on? No. Uh, no. The boat came back under the Golden Gate eight years later. Now, eight years later. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> In between, there are all sorts of variations on it. Um, that first year and a half, it was my brother and I. Uh, all the way, various friends, girlfriends, joining parents. Right? Um, it was, uh, yeah, we had a lot of visitors, um, but from start to finish, that was my brother and I. So that was kind of what we budgeted for too, right? We showed yeah. up in New Zealand a year and a half later. I was uh, running on credit. Uh, so, yeah, you know, not like deep in debt or anything, but it was time to start working more. And I think we were both, and my brother and I were both in that situation. At so this it, point, Lauren, you were done with school. I was. I was done with school. I was back in San Francisco and working. Okay. And I guess didn't meet up until New Zealand, but at that point was kind of in the well, what's happening next camp? Talk a little bit about the communications of this long distance relationship. You're off sailing through the Pacific on your way to New Zealand. How often did you guys talk? Lauren hinted at my skepticism about us yeah. surviving this trip. And that was very much one of them, which is, one, very difficult to communicate. Two, on a trip like this, you part of the point is kind of to not be connected. Right. Uh, <laughs> that said, we did actually have decent ways to communicate, mostly email, right? So over uh, ham radio. Basically, uh, packed or modem. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so we did the like sail mail thing, um, which is yeah, basically a modem hooked up to a you know sideband radio. You know, you, you can count or you can actually like see the characters appearing as it's loading. Right? Oh, it's, I, uh, I remember this well. Yeah. yeah. So <laughs> slow but functional connection. Yes. No pictures. Um, no extra long messages. No way. And then we would talk when I'd get somewhere with internet connection. Yeah. So. Skype or phone calls. Um, I don't honestly remember what frequency that would have been, but it was not frequent. Let's say like when I'd be somewhere with internet, you know, then we, we would chat a handful of times, but then it might be weeks or sometimes a month plus before we'd communicate. Yeah, and just kind of like means of communication, what I imagine you're kind of getting at. In some ways... That felt easier than when I was in New York and Alex was still in San Francisco. Huh, okay. Because like we couldn't talk that much and we didn't and it wasn't it wasn't this emotional thing of, well, why am I not 
why am I not hearing from him? Why are we not talking more? Why, why don't we have so much, why don't we have enough to say to each other every night on the phone? Because who has that much to say to each other every single night on the phone? It made hearing from him and I assume hearing from me feel really exciting and really special. I I knew what he was, what he was doing. He was on a boat with his brother in the middle of the ocean. It wasn't, yeah. It wasn't this like, oh, what's he up to kind of vibe. And having joined him, you could have a better picture of what Absolutely. it was actually like. Yeah, 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 yeah. I could I could imagine it. I was really busy, which helped quite a lot. I was in New York and then I moved back and was starting working and yeah. building a life and had a lot going on. Which isn't to say there weren't times that it was super tough, but mostly I think what was really cool about when we met, even though it wasn't necessarily the best timing was we both were very young and we had things we wanted to do and we more or less support each other through that and kind of got to have our independent lives while still knowing the other person was there somewhere. Uh, I mean, which, that, it's, it's very impressive that, that, that you were able to go do that and to have that assurance and ha- have each other and say, okay, yeah, we're going to go. Be independent. How does that translate to your relationship now? In COVID era, (laughs) we're pretty codependent. (laughs) That's not true. We're, I mean, we're in the same place all the time, which is fine. We're used to doing it in much smaller spaces than where we live. Mm -hmm. I don't know. I think it translates well. We really enjoy traveling together and doing things together, but we will also do things without the other. And that's fine too and positive and would never be a problem i would say lessons from the long distance part are maybe less obvious now apart from it just being like totally acceptable for either of us to do anything like independently right even since then lauren's done travel like solo you know solo trips to guatemala Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's just sort of like not even blinking an eye, if anything, like encouraging that because um, we know it's healthy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Lessons from the boat trip are more just how to live in a small space together, mm-hmm. which is probably mm-hmm. actually more practical. Uh, yeah. Lessons to be learned. <laughs> yeah. Lessons so, for, modern, yeah. Lessons for uh, COVID times. Yeah. I mean, honestly, after. Uh, well, yeah, we've left out some gaps, but there are long periods where Lauren and I were alone on the boat, too. Um, and, you know, it's, it's a learning process how to live and function in a small space with just you and your significant other. Yeah. Uh, and so we kind of we sorted that out on the boat. Uh, and then so, tell me about yeah. some more of the specifics of that. Where were you sailing together? And yeah. what were some of the highlights and lowlights? Right. So. I guess uh, if we left off in New Zealand, Uh um, that was sort of the end of the first stage of the trip, I would say, which is, yeah, about 18 months. uh, My brother and I, uh, by the end, it was pretty clear that we, uh, like, you know, love each other and get along very well for brothers, but that doesn't mean we don't get on each other's nerves. (laughs) (laughs) I was ready to work more. I was looking for just uh, like a mental engagement that like a work project gives you. Uh, I had a beautiful girlfriend back in California. So um, I did spend like four or five months in New Zealand uh, working um, remote. My brother took up a 
bartending job, and it was kind of unclear what the future of the boat was at that point. That was very much phase one, I think. After that, the next several steps become very much my brother's story. I, it was unclear to me. I would have happily sailed more, but like, it was an around-the-world trip in, in sight. Like, I'd say definitely not for me. I'm not even sure if it was for my brother, but probably like a little bit more back of mind. But he decided him and his girlfriend at the time were going to sail up to Indonesia. Okay. And, and so, you know, if I had just really quickly give a rundown of the rest of the trip, yeah. um, it looked like, yeah, phase one to New Zealand, brother sails to Indonesia. Uh, Lauren and I express interest in sailing around Indonesia. So we sort of tag out um, for three months or something. Like okay, that. so let's zoom into that point before yeah. you get to the end of the trip. Where did you okay, cool. pick up the boat? <laughs> uh, so, uh, yeah, my brother took it uh, back up to the Pacific Islands, so he hit Fiji. Basically, mm -hmm. we, we didn't hit Fiji before. We took went from Tonga to New Zealand. Okay. He went back up to Fiji, Torres Strait, um, through to Indonesia, hopped through Indonesia a bit, stopped in Bali. We picked up the boat in Bali. What year was this? This was, yeah, 2015. 2015. I'm fascinated with cruising Indonesia. Yeah. I do think it's gotten a lot easier. At the time, we were, I think we were the last year, what they call the kite, kite which was like a cruising permit you needed. Oh. It was just like this insane level of bureaucracy uh, that was made things kind of frustrating. Like, you know, one of those classic, like these are the sort of issues that sailing in the bay does not prepare you for, right. which is just like... All the bureaucracy of right. entering and exiting countries. Yeah. yeah, yeah, and this is like a particularly archa archaic uh, form of like, great, you need to renew your permit, but you need to renew it in this place, which is actually like upwind, <laughs> the opposite direction. And so you do, it's just like a lot of, yeah, anyway, at this point, I think that's gone and so um that that helps a lot bali is a challenging place uh -huh. <laughs> um but a very beautiful place i gotta say i have pretty mixed feelings about our time in bali and i'm sure lauren can add in there just moments of pure beauty and we had some really incredible times and found some incredible locations um and then mix that with uncontrolled tourism and it like may not align exactly with everyone's image of bali going into it that said really incredible place and you know the more of indonesia you see bali stands out um it's just like the cultural difference is very obvious so where in the archipelago did you guys sail uh so yeah we joined in bali you start our, joined the boat in bali yeah okay. our intent actually originally was to do a little um not quite reverse loop, but, you know, back east and then mm -hmm. back to Bali, um, which would have included, you know, Flores Island, Komodo Island. Anyway, that was the original idea. We got to Bali. We spent about a month just fixing the boat up. Uh, <laughs> Lauren, this it is, been, uh, was this your introduction to boat work? <laughs> mm, not my introduction, but definitely my immersion. Uh -huh. and, and it has to be said, Alex did the lion's share of the work not least because it involved trying to fix the diesel engine which pff, no oh. way i'm a writer i don't you can't do that it's amazing how much time you can spend on a diesel engine when it's a sailboat yeah <laughs> so no longer has one which is perhaps a ah. question for later but 
Um, yeah, no, I mean, we arrived thinking we'd, we'd fix up the boat for a week or two and head out. And we were there for a month mm. in an anchorage that in some ways was really cool. It was definitely off the beaten track and it had a very distinct community of local fishermen and alcoholic sailors who'd been there for <laughs> decades. But it was like a, it was a kind of cool spot to find ourselves. That said, there was some raw sewage. We couldn't go in the water. It was, mm. it was kind of gross. Yeah. So we were there for longer than we thought, which is kind of the theme of sailing, especially when work is involved, spending a lot of time on a beat up motorbike in traffic, trying to track down engine parts that we couldn't find. Yeah. Fixing things in exotic locations. Yeah. So it was, it was pretty frustrating and patience isn't necessarily my strong suit. So it was, (laughs) it was a little challenging, but once we left and we finally went elsewhere, we went just up the coast to... Ahmed, the northwest, no, east, northeast part of the island, and just stay there for two weeks. It was like, oh, this is incredible. I mean, we were moored over some of the best snorkeling I've ever seen, and we could catch little mackerel to fry up for dinner and swim to shore, and there was tourism, but it felt way more under control than parts of southern Bali that we've been spending time. It was just like, oh, this is why you live on it tiny sailboat like this is it this is what we're doing here you know watching the sun go down behind a volcano while playing the ukulele and making cocktails it was it was ridiculous it was a postcard (laughs) the highs and lows were pretty apparent pretty quickly yeah so as alex mentioned we were originally planning on kind of heading back east and looping around we started to do that going over to the gilly islands in lombok Mm -hmm. um which was okay but you know upwind sailing is not the funnest Mm mm-hmm And we'd also, we'd stopped in Singapore on our way down to Bali and I think had both just been struck by how much we liked it. We weren't necessarily expecting to, but the food was just so next level. Oh my gosh, the food in Singapore. After all of those months of traveling, it was like, wow, all this air conditioning and this tap water and drink (laughs) and on a boat, you start thinking about things like air conditioning and food that you ate two months ago. A cold beer. Well, primarily the reason we didn't go east was... Oh, okay, well, there are a lot of stories in here, um, <laughs> and I'll skip some, maybe. But uh, okay, long story short, Lauren glossed over this too. But on our way to Ahmed, uh, it was probably the closest we've been to losing the boat. What happened? Most of ocean sailing and cruising is, um, I would say, actually like pretty. The 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 you're like bored almost. That's the biggest problem. Um, we talked to you about Nicaragua, which is pretty exciting. Right. Um, and this is another situation where very strong currents and, and that basically force you closer to shore. And that's when things get exciting. Yeah. So um, in this case, there's a current where all of the the like the the current coming across the Pacific Ocean driven by the trade winds slams into Indonesia and a lot of it forces its way in between Bali and Lombok. And so you almost always have something like a four-knot current going through there. Wow. Uh, And Saltbreaker's max speed is about six knots. Um, And this is also kind of upwind. Right. And so it's a a tricky channel. And, of course, with current also comes treacherous seas. So basically we were, were again, hugging shore as much as we could. Uh, Saltbreaker had just recently been converted from a wheel to a tiller. Okay. Uh, which really saved a lot of cockpit space, which is great. Um, but also wasn't like 
uh, had no sea trials. And so uh-huh. is where uh, full sail and diesel uh, full throttle uh, near shore where the current was. It basically were rounding a point. I mean, even with full sail, probably like 15 knots of wind behind us in the diesel on full blast, we were probably going like a half a knot wow. over land. Yeah, okay. it just barely countering current, right? Yeah. To the point where you're just like constantly trying to gauge like, are we making progress or not? Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, yeah. And it's just about then where, you know, we're, we're probably, let's say like a couple hundred meters offshore at ease from the current and push the tiller one direction and then pull it back. And it's way easier going back and realize the tiller pin had sheared. Oh my gosh. So the rudder is like stuck steering the boat to port, which is where shore is with the (laughs) diesel on full blast and all the sail up and a coral reef right there. (laughs) Kind of your nightmare. And it's just the two of you aboard. It's just the two of us. And so I said all sorts of things that I can't say on the air. (laughs) It was basically just spouting off swear words that Lauren translated correctly into help me take the sails down uh, <laughs> while I threw the engine, which had been sucking up salt, wa- salt water through the raw water pump, but we didn't know that yet, and throw it in reverse, tried to shut it off, uh, then throw it in reverse, but do that too quickly. So it shears off the pins connecting to the prop shaft. Okay, so <laughs> this is a classic case of one yeah. thing leading to the next and the cascading. So, so, so you have no steering. No steering, all our sail up. The engine. engine is racing, but it's... Engine's racing. I throttle back. It, it basically, you know, it's a... Uh, the throttle is, like, back to neutral, and then you can go in reverse. Right, okay. Um, and as I, like, throttle to... Like, you kind of have to, at least on our boat, do that pretty softly. Well, in a panic, I go to, like, try and do that, but a little too fast and, like, shear off the... the bolts holding the prop shaft to the, the coupling just sheared yeah, yeah. Oh, God. and the engine just shuts down completely which is fine They're like okay great one one, one motor propulsion <laughs> one out of the problem. way sails are uh, down yeah. engine is off now sails mostly down um lauren's dealing with sails more while i just throw anything i possibly can think would hold on the ground off the, the boat so we had a stern anchor all set up uh throw that off it probably gets like 50 feet of line out before that line tangles and like you know what screw it i'm just gonna go throw the bow anchor off too bow anchor like getting that chain gets kind of like all tangled and yeah i'm just basically running back and forth trying to get both anchors out as far as i can uh-huh uh is we just like power towards shore still this is like a pretty short period of time where we're talking about two minutes or something yeah i don't know how much chain i had out the bow anchor finally grabbed and i was on the stern of the boat at that point the bow anchor grabbed, and I saw the stern just sweep about two or three feet from a coral head. Oh, gosh. So we were probably going, I don't know, like four knots maybe still when the anchor grabbed. So it was just like a, I mean, we probably caught a coral head. I don't know what we caught with that anchor, but it just stopped us immediately. It was close. It was really close. Wow. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. And, and, and you're just hoping it's going to hold. Honestly, I don't remember thinking about it holding much. <laughs> I was just so glad we hadn't slammed into that slammed so into fast. The reef. It didn't take too long. We were able to get back underway, got the coupling fixed up, fired the engine back up, 
made it to Ahmed that Lauren just mentioned. Spent about two. Wait, weeks so you there. had bolts that you could just you you were able to get the sheared bolts out, put new ones in. Yeah, this is this has happened before. So uh-huh, uh huh. Okay. Yeah. Uh, that's a skill that I guess like you don't one of those skills you don't want to have but you have like yeah sheared this was a known problem sheared bolts in the prop uh, coupling like no problem can get those out and you uh, were able to to fix the tiller as well uh yeah so that just needed another bolt too another bolt Um, as well yeah yeah basically it was a without going into details but the bolt that was in there had a little bit of wiggle room Mm -hmm. and so uh it was like a corner on the um, one of the fittings that basically the bolt was just like all in shear in one spot. So a slightly okay. different size bolt and a few hacks and it was in much better shape. But I alluded also to the fact that little did we know the raw water pump. Right. Um, this is one of the, we hadn't really been running the engine since we'd even gotten to Bali. And so this is really also the first trial with that. One of the seals must have gone bad in the time Saltbreaker spent a handful of months in Bali with no one on it. Yeah. Who knows if it's during that time or what. But um, anyway, one of these seals must have gone bad because uh, we were getting salt water through the raw, raw water pump into the engine, basically making mayonnaise inside. Mm-hmm. So all the oil was turning mm-hmm. to like a gray, thick mm-hmm. substance. Um, and we didn't realize that until we got to Ahmed and I went to go check the oil. Uh, uh after this whole endeavor with, uh, you know, throwing it in reverse, et cetera. That was a really long way of saying our plans changed, um, which is a pretty unsurprising occurrence when you're sailing. But um, our original intent of heading east quickly turned to a let's go as much downwind as we can. (laughs) (laughs) To a place that might have the engine parts we need. Exactly. Yes. Yeah. So... So suddenly, I Singapore, understand that type of scheduling. Yeah, yes. Singapore uh, quickly escalated on our priority list, where it would normally be a place that just fly and visit to. But right. now it was a no. Actually, it would be nice to um, make a few repairs there. Repairs. <laughs> uh, so, how long were you all sailing together then in Indonesia? Three to four months on the boat. Not all of which was spent sailing, of course, but it was part of a longer, I think, six-month trip where we did a bunch of land travel too, just around Southeast Asia and Japan, nice. which was amazing. But yeah, we headed west, which ended up being really cool. We just, we went to islands that we knew very little about that were all really unique and really different from each other. And we were very often the only Westerners, period. Um, it was also during Ramadan, which was really interesting because Indonesia is heavily Muslim outside of Bali. And it was in, in many ways super cool, just like a super different time to be exploring. It also meant it was really hard to get provisions oh, since so, yes. so much was closed when uh-huh. we would go to shore to try and find things. But when we arrived at Belatung, which was, I think, our last stop before kind of the northern part of Indonesia, right across the channel from Singapore, it was Eid, so it was the end of Ramadan, and there mm. were just families who would converge on the beach for vacation and celebrating and we you know ramble up to shore we're both pretty tall alex is really tall really western and scraggly and salty haired hadn't really seen anyone much period and it's just this beach full of people who descend on us and are handing us their children and taking photos of us and with (laughs) us um one family just pulls us to the ground and starts feeding us 
as travel experiences go, it's pretty hard to beat that. Yeah. So it ended up being a really great trajectory in places that we went. It was also kind of challenging sailing. They were, these were almost all like three night passages. So nothing too long, but also meant it was pretty hard to get used to the schedule in that period of time. It's like mm-hmm. just long enough that you're exhausted and just yes. short enough. Those that are hard. You don't yeah. acclimate. Yeah. Um, tons of shipping traffic everywhere. Tons of unmarked shipping traffic everywhere. Oil rigs just, I mean, compared to other sailing trips that I've gotten to do, like this was just the most you see. So night watches, you're not messing around. You're like actively looking for things. That's a busy part of the world. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, I hit something on my very first night watch. It was a fish attracting device that was not lit. And we were more than 10 miles offshore. And I just stood up and looked around. It's kind of like right before dawn. So still no sun, really dark. Look around, don't see anything. Sit back down and Jim is just boom. And Alex, who's trying to sleep below, just comes like, (laughs) running up like what just happened it was like a big it was like a big pontoon basically with oil drums on it and stuff dangling below to attract fish and fishermen would come out unmarked couldn't see it but was totally fine unlit yeah yeah but wow i've still not lived it down at least for myself (laughs) (laughs) alex was nice about it even if he gave me a little bit of a hard time so yeah great sailing you're never gonna see that yeah yeah great sailing hard not the like Easiest thing as a couple, but we figured it out for sure. We got engaged on that trip. So Well, tell us that story. We were off of Bellatung, and I was having a day where I was in a mood, and the boat was <laughs> rolly. Um, and our plan had been to go to just like a little, a bunch of little spits of islands all around the main island and have a bonfire, which Alex had talked about as being one of his favorite things to do while sailing, which we hadn't done yet. And so I was being kind of cranky but pulled it together we found a beer on shore which helped just the one <laughs> been a while and so we go over to this island around sunset and alex built a fire and speared a couple fish we we're cooking hanging out and he goes this is a little impromptu I'm like what are we gonna go lobster fishing like are you gonna make me spear something what's gonna happen and he goes what do you think and he holds up a ring which i'm wearing it's made out of anchor wire oh that's awesome yeah and I, I was it. very taken aback and surprised and was like, are you proposing? He's like, yeah. I said, yes, of course. He'd smuggled our last bottle of wine onto the island. We had a great night, super fun. Uh-huh. Challenging, but overall super positive. And I came out of that ready to be on land, but also much more open to the idea of doing a longer passage, a longer trip, in large part because Alex had spoken so much about how those short hops in some ways are harder and the longer way is hard in a different way, but kind of physically gets easier. Yeah. Have you done a longer passage together yet? Yeah. But I guess that even leads into the next steps of the trip, which was from there we left the boat in Malaysia, basically Singapore, And my brother went back to the boat sometime later and basically took it from there up kind of around Java, across the Indian Ocean to South Africa. Okay. That sounded like its own adventure. Um, I don't have the stories from that one, but it sounded pretty uh, unpleasant. The Indian Ocean was not his favorite. Uh, Yeah, I've heard it's... it's 
tough. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sure there were some great moments in there too. Madagascar sounded pretty great. But you then brought the boat all the way to South Africa. And we're probably talking like a year and a half later. At that point then, Lauren and I uh, and my brother and his now girlfriend, but like very recent girlfriend, all four of us crossed the Atlantic together. Oh, so, okay. So we've definitely been on long passages together, um, but not just the two of us. Yeah. yeah. You were mentioning that in, in South Africa, you met Delos. I wanted to ask you about the community, the the people who you've met along the way, the, the sailing community. I mean, the sailing community is amazing, right? It's, uh, I think one of the things I like most is where you like, you pull into an anchorage and who knows where you are, but the more remote you are, the more likely it is that you like pass this boat and you <laughs> give each other a little wave yeah, and like do your own thing. And then when like you or they are coming back to their boat by dinghy, almost without fail, they're going to like cruise by and just see what's up. And that usually turns into a like, Hey, come on by for a drink later or something like that. So it, you, you know, there are a lot fewer people out that like, you don't run into nearly as many people as you would be running into if you were traveling over land. Um, but when you show up somewhere in an anchorage, you basically have like immediate friends yeah. of some sort. I, I think that's amazing. We've met some really great people over the trip. I mean, really, there are some that are, were kind of from the very beginning. I guess we didn't touch on this, but like from California, we went we started with the haha, ha ha okay. yeah. Uh, and we met, um, well, we met several friends on that trip that for the first first phase of the trip, we were all very close and buddy-boated and spent a lot of time. But we also ran into some people on the, that trip that we weren't close with at the time, but then subsequently became very close with. So there's about Convivia, a family with um, two kids uh, that... We probably just waved at each other or something in the haha, um, and then um, they were in South Africa too. Paths cross inevitably, yeah. yeah. Um, and so you know, yeah, Convivia and and uh, great friend Doug, who was I guess on a couple different boats over the course of the time we knew him. But uh, Doug, Doug basically, Doug and Zuleika, they we met them in French Polynesia, and fate just I guess led us to like basically be in the same places at the same time almost entirely through the duration of the trip right like all the way to Panama um and then yeah and you meet you know like really one of our better friends now even Connor uh, I met in Polynesia so um and he you know lives around well it's now in San Diego but yeah you you form pretty strong friendships pretty quickly yeah uh in these sorts of situations uh and that's that's really one of the highlights. Uh, the locations are like that's always great too, but I feel like you just you inevitably meet interesting people sailing. And interesting might mean some spectrum from like doomsday to like. Uh, <laughs> but there's <laughs> a some, but, like, but there's, but somehow that doesn't matter because you have the all, common. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah. No. Yeah. The. Yeah, like uh, people who you you may not ha- immediately bond with in any other situation, you have this common thread immediately, and so you get a it opens up to you it opens you up to a much broader spectrum of interactions. Yeah, um, and and that applies not just to other sailors, but I think also to people on land and the community. Indonesians on the beach. <laughs> yeah, I mean, 
you know, some places you show up and it's um, you're the like, I guess like South Africa, right? Like Cape Town, you pull in there, it's like, well, you're you're just kind of anyone. Uh, mm-hmm. But a lot of sailing, I think, particularly when done right, or maybe not right, that's the wrong word, but um, cautiously and like smart, uh, <laughs> involves waiting for weather windows um, mm-hmm. and like thinking a lot about the best time to do these passages, et cetera. Um, I think that's how you avoid a lot of the super hairy situations. Um, and the result of that is spending times places where you didn't necessarily plan to. Mm. Um, and so sometimes that's a place that's just like another city. Um, but sometimes it's a really, really small community um, that you would just absolutely never go to um, any other time period right like uh like we spent i forget how much time but uh like at least like three weeks i think it was maybe more than a month in this tiny town in tonga that we like actually thought we were about to leave but then a storm cropped up in the forecast (laughs) and so we after having like gotten our visas stamped turned around and went just right back to this place and like that sort of place you're just never going to go there and and you are like similar to meeting other sailors. You are in just like such a small community that you're just immediately welcomed in. Those kinds of things are so special. That, that's what it's all about in my mind. I know some people really like crossings. I don't dislike crossings. Some of my more fond moments sailing are on crossings. But for the most part, you're kind of just trying to figure out your sleeping schedule and you're, so you're kind of always just a little hazy and you're reading and it's almost like boring mixed with these glorious moments. I don't think I would do a really long passage if there weren't these experiences waiting at the end. Uh-huh. Yeah. I think it's, it's very, like I wouldn't just like leave San Francisco and go sail like three weeks out and three weeks back right. to end up back in San Francisco, right? It's all about where you end up in my mind. Yeah, I hear that. You're not a motissier. <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah i'm just gonna keep going no i relate to that a great deal i just glanced and we're already over an hour which astonishes me <laughs> i'm just enjoying this conversation so much but i'm gonna jump us forward chronologically because i mentioned that we would talk about the delta so um saltbreaker is is she back in the bay yeah. now? So Saltbreaker limped back into the bay <laughs> two years ago. So we took Saltbreaker through the canal, Panama Canal. Okay. Um, and then my brother decided to sail it back up to San Francisco, uh-huh. a trip which he invited me on. The Baja Bash. And I considered and thankfully did not do. <laughs> 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 because this trip, which like at, least, at first it was like, oh, yeah, probably going to be a month or so uh and you know i was like oh that could be kind of fun it would be pretty great to be do this long trip and end up back in san francisco turned into like 70 something days 72 days oh gosh uh just a combination of bad luck and the boat was finding some limits made it back in the bay about two years ago and then spent pretty much a year um, repairing the broke the chain plates, so switching it to external chain plates. Oh, okay. Which is actually only fifty percent done, but is one of those projects that's like peeling onions. So 
Yeah. Oh, got to replace the chain plate. Oh, wait, what's up with these bulkheads? Oh, oh they're delaminating. Oh, not just the three. bulkheads. Oh, also boy. this one. Oh, how did this boat stay together? <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, I guess I'll just rebuild the whole starboard side, like furniture and all, because I had to cut it all out to get to, like, it basically wow. turned into this big project. And the reward for the, me finishing the project, my personal reward, was to take the boat up into the Delta. Nice. So, yeah, Alex was kind of starting to think about these repairs, which we didn't realize would be so extensive, common theme, in earnest in, like, winter of 2020. And then pandemic hit, everything shuts down. But fortunately, we could still go to Alameda and hang on the boat. And Alex started doing a ton of work. And at first, I mean, spring 2020, we're like, oh, well, yeah, we'll just slap those chain plates in and we're going to go up the Delta this summer. It'll, it'll be great. It'll be warm. It'll be so cold in the sunset. We can just go hang out, explore. Um, we ended up doing that a year later, but it was great. It was an amazing trip. We sailed up in May. That first week we were up there, we were buddy boating with a friend who'd gotten a boat during the pandemic. It was his first time kind of sailing period, oh, fun. which was a good learning experience. I think challenging, but good. And we just bopped around a few different places. It was definitely just kind of relishing in the strangeness of the landscape and how different it was compared to what we were used to, both in the bay and also on the ocean. Yeah, it is. It's it's a really unique place. And you got into a bit more of the history and ended up writing this fabulous article for the New York Times. So tell us a little bit about what you learned about the Delta. When we were up there, I started seeing these signs everywhere we went saying, stop the tunnels, save the Delta. Mm-hmm. Like, what does that mean? Because I'm an uninformed Californian and hadn't been paying attention apparently for the last 30 years. <laughs> um, <laughs> but the Delta, basically since the early, mid 20th century, has been kind of a fulcrum in California's water supply. Um, and I'm actually in the middle of reading a really phenomenal book about California water called The Dreamt Land by Mark Arax. Highly recommend. The Dreamt uh, Land? The Dreamt Land, okay. yeah. Um, the premise of which is, this is oversimplifying, that the vast majority of California is just created by humans, in large part by diverting water in extreme ways. Huh. And so the Delta, as it exists now, has really only existed for 50 or so years maybe 150 to 100 years. Originally, the Delta was a vast wetlands, marshland ecosystem. And that was very quickly changed as population in California exploded, as agriculture exploded, as the gold rush changed everything in this area as we know it. And that translated in the form of building levees to control where the water went and to expose farmland and dredging rivers and canals in part for easier transport in large part because of hydraulic mining in the Sierra, which was clogging the waterways beyond comprehension. Hydraulic mining for gold. Yes. Yeah. Completely altering the flow of rivers. The San Joaquin River as it is now is not actually the San Joaquin River. It's like another river diverted. I couldn't possibly begin to explain it off the top of my head. It's wildly complex But kind of through the course of that, the Delta became 
this weird intersection of water and ecosystem and communities, people who live up there in small towns that have been there for anywhere from 100 to 150 years and don't want their water taken away or don't want their homes underwater. And it's difficult, and I'm not going to try and really state an opinion, it's difficult to know what what the right future is because the inevitable thing from all of my research is the Delta as it exists now is not going to exist forever. Something is going to yeah. change. And whether that's a choice we make or something that happens due to rising sea levels or extreme drought or earthquake kind of remains to be seen. Wow. That's fascinating. Just the idea that we've so altered this land and it's going to continue to change. I mean, there's something comforting in that, in that change is always happening, but it is, it is such a strange landscape, especially to sail through and to be on the water and look up and see cars driving by and, and to look down on farmland, which has receded so far below the water level as these levees have gotten higher and higher. And there's also kind of, nitty gritty detail about the type of soil that's in a much of the Delta that will blow up, will dry, dry up and blow off. So it's a lot of topsoil loss as well. I think what you, what you just said is something that feels impossible to not think about all the time living in California or the world really, but California always kind of feels like we're um, for better or worse on the forefront of things like this with the fires, with the drought, with just the more extreme, whether we experience the more extreme nature we experience, it raises the question of how we keep living here and how we keep kind of taking from the land and from the water the way we have been. That said, I, I don't want to leave. I want to stay here. So yeah. in writing that story, I, I found that it's become really important for me to look for that side of things when traveling, which we haven't gotten to do a ton of in recent years with, everything being shut down, right. but just a, a kind of deeper understanding of all of the elements at play. What was the title of the article for anybody who wants to go online and look it up? It's a great question. I think it's some, I think it's the headline is something like sailing the winding waterways of California, okay. California Delta, yeah. but on New York times travel section. Look, if Delta. We, I think Google your name to Lawrence loss. It comes up Delta. I assume yeah. so. Yeah. Also, well, also re- writing a story about the Delta while the Delta variant was... <laughs> the Delta variant was not a thing when I pitched that story. It was very much a thing when I wrote it. it was well, I was just looking for this story earlier yeah. today, actually, and so I typed in Delta, and the Delta variant was the first thing that popped up. Oh, yes. man. Also, when I was like, oh, so what are you working? I'm like, oh, I'm working on this great story about the Delta. They're like, what? Great? What? <laughs> what? <laughs> what haven't we talked about here? I've kept you guys talking for an hour and 20 minutes now, so... But anything else that you want to add that we didn't cover about sailing, Delta, writing? We're not done sailing. We don't know when it'll happen again. But is it something that you guys look forward to doing together again? Yeah. At some point? Yeah. yeah. I mean, we saw enough other families with kids sailing mm-hmm. like to realize that it's not that insane of an idea. So whether, yeah, that's in our future, like kids are in the future or not, I think either way. Uh, they'll be sailing involved. And I still have to do the Pacific, which, mm. I mean, kind of seems like half the point from everything that Alex has said and everything that I've heard. 
More immediately though, we're thinking about going up to Tamales Bay for a little bit. Give Saltburg's port side a little love and then another reward. Um, but maybe a similar kind of thing to the Delta where we'd get up there and leave the boat there for a little bit. So we yeah. have a base to hang out and nice. explore. We just love it up there a lot. Yeah. Cool. Well, thanks very much. This was great. Really enjoyed it. Thanks. Super fun. Yeah. That's it for this episode. Hope you enjoyed the interview. I've put a link to Lauren's New York Times piece up in the show notes, and you can find more about their trip on Saltbreaker at saltbreaker.com. Find me on Instagram at outthegatesailing or reach out to me via email at outthegatesailing at gmail.com. I'm Ben Shaw, host and producer of the show, and until next time, smooth sailing.